You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Well, good morning, church. You can have a seat. How are you this morning? Awesome. My name is Jamin Roller. If you're visiting, uh, I am one of the lead pastors here at Citizens Church. So welcome to all those in the room. Welcome to all those who are watching us from somewhere, maybe at home, maybe on your couch, maybe together with others. Uh, I know that church is certainly different uh, these days, and uh, that has uh, created a lot of complexity to coming to church uh, or to watching church Uh, And while church might be different in a lot of ways, God is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I take great comfort in that. This morning is bittersweet for me. We have been in the book of Colossians since September 15th of 2019. And we took a couple of breaks here and there. uh, But this morning we will uh, finish the book. This is the last sermon in the sermon series on the book of Colossians. You just heard Melissa read for us the farewell. By the way, uh, how about Melissa reading all those really difficult names with perfection, right? Well done, my friend. Uh, And here's what I want to do this morning. The uh, letter to the church in in Colossae was written a couple thousand years ago. It was a really young church, and Paul writes this letter because this church uh, is going through difficulty, and so this church is experiencing pressure both internally from within the church and externally outside the church in the surrounding culture. It was a pressure to shrink back from the gospel, uh, a pressure to uh, believe less about the work of Jesus in their lives, or a pressure to add to the work of Jesus in their lives. And so Paul writes this letter, and in verse 2 of chapter 1, what he does is he just addresses them as the saints and faithful brothers and sisters. And then there's four words, in Christ at Colossae, in Christ at Colossae. And that's really the theme of the book. The theme of the book is that Paul spends four chapters in in this letter describing life in Christ. This is what life in Christ means. It's what life in Christ looks like. It's what it looks like as a Christian in your heart, in your home, in your workplace, in the surrounding world to be united with Jesus and to live out of a life with Jesus. And so that's where we've been. As you've walked in over the last year, you've seen that on the screen, Colossians, life in Christ. It's right here to my left, life in Christ. That's the theme of the book. And so we will spend a little bit of time in the farewell that Melissa just read. We'll get there in about 30 minutes or so we'll finish there. But what I really want to do this morning is I want to go back uh, to the book and I want to go back and and look kind of at a really high level and just remember what we learned together. Uh, So really what that means, you can turn to Colossians chapter one while you're hearing me. Really what that means is is going uh, almost through a highlight reel of what we've been through in the book. Now for two reasons. One is a personal reason. There are just some verses in this book that have been so meaningful to me in this year, and I'm just not ready to leave them behind, so I want to take one more shot at letting God speak to us through them. And then second, I think at the end of being in a book together, almost a year in a book together, we can at a really high level uh, see some things about what life in Christ looks like and be reminded of that. So this morning, we're finishing Colossians. Colossians is all about life in Christ. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1. We'll read verses 15 through 20. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, life in Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible, will you find a passage with more Christological depth than Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It is rich and it is dense. It's got these short phrases in it, like he's the image of the invisible God. And it's these phrases that really take an unpacking of the entire story of the Bible to begin to understand. And I kid you not, were I a smarter man, as long as we had spent in the book of Colossians, were I a smarter man, we could spend as much time in verses one, uh, chapter 1, 15 through 20, and still not say all that there is to say. There's that much depth about Jesus in this. But it's not just a section that's deep and dense. It's artistic. It's poetic. If you remember back to last year, what we said about it is it's a song. This is an early church hymn that Christians used to sing about Jesus. It's worship. And those two realities really capture the beginning place of life in Christ. That the beginning place of life in Christ is that these truths about Jesus, these lofty, dense, um, deep, theologically rich realities about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, uh, we don't just believe those. They capture our hearts. We sing them with fervor and with passion and with love because, friends, what is true about Jesus both fills the mind and captures the heart. He is who we were made for. Look, life in Christ is marked by this simple truth that outside of Christ there really is no life, no life outside of Him. There is a hunger in the human heart And Jesus is the only feast that will satisfy that hunger. And so that's on display in this song. It says he's the image of the invisible God. That means he's the clearest revelation of who God is. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And if you have a conception of who God is that is different than how God's revealed himself in Jesus, the conception you have of God is not God at all. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, if Jesus has time for people, that means God has time for you. If Jesus is gentle and patient with people, that means God is gentle and patient with you. If Jesus took sin seriously, that means God takes sin seriously. If Jesus is able to enter into the brokenness and mess of people's lives, God can enter into the brokenness and mess of your life. Jesus is the clearest revelation of God, and we see that about him presented in this song and sung about in this song. It also says, by him all things are created. Jesus stands over and above all rulers and all authorities, so everything that exists owes its existence to Jesus. And and anyone with any amount of power or authority, they ultimately yield to Jesus who has ultimate power and ultimate authority. It says he's before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is in perfect sovereign control over everything happening in the world. Jesus is in perfect sovereign control over everything happening in your world including everything happening in your world right now, which is hard to believe in times that are chaotic, hard to believe in times that are difficult, but life in Christ is not about being able to see and understand everything going on in my world. Life in Christ is about fixing our eyes on Jesus who sees and understands everything going on in the world. And when everything going on in the world is blurry, Jesus never comes out of focus, never comes out of focus. 
He is the clear revelation of who God is. He holds all things together. Everything was created for him. He is the firstborn from the dead. Death had a perfect record until Jesus. Death won every battle. Death took life and never gave it back. And then Jesus comes along and the battle changes and the tides turn. Where death took life and never gave it back, Jesus gives up his life. And three days later, by the power of God, he takes it back in his resurrection. And now death is still fighting battles, but death is part of a war that it cannot win because Jesus is not the only one to rise. Jesus is just the firstborn from the dead, which means all those who belong to him, though they may die, they will live because they belong to the one who defeated death. And our death-defeating risen king is also head of the church. And he is uh, reconciling all things because he made peace through the blood of his cross. And now there's not only a way to live in the world, but there is a way to live in the new world, which is what it means in verse 14 when it says he's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and delivered us in the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus is Lord of creation. He's Lord of new creation. And in him, the world is being made right. Do you see Jesus? Friend, as you hear the fullness of who Christ is, and what he has done, our risen king, our sovereign savior, Lord of creation and new creation, does, does something not stir in you to hear about him? Is there not even the slightest longing for something that's maybe deeper than what this world has to offer? There is no one like him. We said in these verses, what is said in these verses is true about Jesus, and it's only true about Jesus. He's the point of creation, the image of God, the death-defeating Lord of the world that is to is to come, and is the only answer for the hunger of the human heart. In light of all of this that is true about Jesus and only true about Jesus, he is the only feast these truths are sung and not simply stated because there's not simply an intellectual response to these kinds of claims. To believe it as a Christian is to say there is no way to live outside of it. That is life in Christ. He and he alone gets exclusive claim over all of my hunger and over all of my desires. And listen, outside of Jesus, the best we can do is to manage our emptiness and restlessness. So we've talked about this before. We'll talk about it again. Um, but the way that I've described it before is that many of us are just caught in this triangle of restlessness, that we feel an emptiness. Uh, I am not happy. I am not content. I am unsatisfied with life. We feel the hunger of the heart for more, but instead of honoring the hunger by searching for the feast, we settle for some sort of cheap fix, and we respond in three ways, just like floating to three corners of a triangle. We're up here, and we say, because of my unhappiness, because of my discontentment, because of my restlessness, what I really need is change. I need some sort of circumstantial change. And we populate that change in different ways depending on where we are in life, right? I need more money. I need a different job. I need a relationship. I need a relationship to heal. I need a relationship to end. I need life to calm down. I need life to get more exciting. I need life to get easier. I need a new challenge. I just need to get to the weekend. I just need to get to the vacation. I just need to get through the pandemic. I just need a little change. And when something out here changes, what I believe is that the feeling in here will also change. The restlessness will go away, and it never does. Spoiler alert, 
what happens is the change either never comes or the change does come and then the restlessness just moves to something else, right? Some of us, you've been in this place, if you're honest with yourself, some of us are in the change right now that we were waiting for one day and all it's brought is a new set of change that we're now waiting for because I believed about my restlessness, I believed about the hunger of my heart that it was shallow enough that a few changes could just make it go away and it never does. And so I float down here to some sort of stand-in savior. I'm at another corner of this triangle of restlessness and, and I'm looking to someone in my life who I look to to overcome my emptiness, someone in my life who's gonna bring value into my life. So I look to a spouse or I look to a dating relationship or I look to a child or I look to a friend or I look to a parent and I place on them expectations that only Jesus can meet and demand of them that they fix what only Jesus can heal. And it's because I believe about my restlessness and believe about my hunger that it was shallow enough for a mere human to fix, shallow enough that a bit of romance or shallow enough that the right friend group would finally make me complete and whole and satisfied and never works. And I almost always end up demonizing those who I look to as savior. So then I come over here to coping and we all do this. I look to something to escape my restlessness. I cope in something. And, and so coping is not honest dealing with our restless hearts. Coping is distraction from the fact that we are restless. And our mechanisms for coping are different. They have different levels of darkness to them and they have different consequences associated with them, but they come from the same condition. And so here's what I mean. The restless heart can try to cope in alcohol. It can try to cope in food. It can try to cope in social media. It can try to cope in streaming or in shopping or in pornography or in work or in buying all that is shiny and new. There are degrees of darkness in all of it and degrees of consequences associated with it, but make no mistake, everyone medicates. Everyone tries to stave off the hunger with some cheap fix. Everyone tries to distract from the gnawing ache of the soul for more than what we have and for more than who we are. And so, Everyone has mechanisms for coping that distract from that longing, which means regardless of the form it takes, none of us are better than anyone else. Some have just found more socially acceptable ways of distraction, but that doesn't make the pursuit any less foolish. And we cope because we believe about our hunger that it's shallow enough that we can be distracted from it and eventually we can become numb to it. And so many people are just stuck in that restlessness, moving from one corner to the other, working or waiting for change that will settle my heart, um, looking to someone to save me from my restlessness, trying to cope, trying to distract, uh, trying to stave off my restless condition, and I just stay stuck in that triangle, believing about my need that it's more shallow than it is. Would you believe, friend, about your restlessness? Would you believe that it's saying something to you about what you're made for? It's saying something to you that you're made for more than what this world can offer. This is what C.S. Lewis means in his essay, The Weight of Glory, when he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We have eternal hunger in our hearts, a restlessness that cannot find a home in what is temporal and fleeting, which means we try and find satisfaction in things that are unqualified to bring it. No amount of change in our circumstances, no other human in our lives, no amount of coping is qualified to fill a heart that has cravings that are deeper for anything that this world can offer. There's only one. There's only one qualified to satisfy the longing of the soul. It's Jesus. Only one who brings true rest, only one who can fill the emptiness in our lives in a way that's not cheap or in a way that's not fleeting because 
of verses 15 through 20, because he's the image of the invisible God, because he and he alone is the firstborn over all creation, and he he alone is the one who holds all things together, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the death-defeating, crown-wearing, peace-bringing Lord of all creation who's uniting heaven and earth because of the peace of his cross. There's only one, and it's Jesus. And that is the refrain of life in Christ, that Jesus is all I need. It's right belief about him and right desire for him. And hear me, let's be fair. No, the restlessness doesn't go away in a moment. Anybody know that as a Christian? It doesn't go away in a moment. The wrestle with restlessness is part of life in Christ, but it's a wrestle that's not marked by continual searching for rest it is marked by over and again bringing our hunger to the feast we've already found, which is Jesus, and agreeing with the psalmist who says, the Lord is my portion in my cup. I have no good apart from you. That's life in Christ. And would you wonder with me about something? I want to tread lightly here because I know life is really difficult for so many right now, but I wonder if one of the things God has done in the past six months in all the change and disruption of life because of COVID and all the other things, I wonder if in love for some of us, God is highlighting restlessness in our hearts and then disrupting some of the ways that we would typically cope with that restlessness, that we would lose confidence in what will never satisfy and grow in conviction that Jesus and Jesus alone is what our hearts need. I'm asking that about my heart in this season. Life in Christ is Jesus is the only way to live. Look at chapter two, verses 13 through 15. Chapter two, verse 13 through 15. Life in Christ, Jesus is the only way to live. Life in Christ is the forgiven life the life where we get a new identity in Jesus. Verse 13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Listen to 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Life in Christ is the forgiven life. Life in Christ is the life where you get a new identity in Jesus. Not defined by what you've done, but defined by what Jesus has done for you. And so this passage reminds us of who we were. It reminds us that we were dead in our trespasses. Earlier in the letter, it says that we were alien and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. We were part of the domain of darkness and as much, as much as we would love for this to not be true, the Bible over and again reminds us that our biggest problem is us, that our biggest problem is the problem of the heart, our hearts. And the Bible calls that a spiritual death. We are not weak by sin in need of improvement. We are not confused by sin in need of some advice. We are dead in sin in need of life. Which means my sin problem cannot be fixed by a list of morals. It cannot be fixed by a change of habits. It can only be fixed by the Savior who conquers death. And while many of us, I think this is true, while many of us have a hard time believing that we're as broken as the Bible says we are, I hear that, I feel that, I've experienced that, I think even more of us, from my seat, listening, observing, being a human, being a pastor, I think even more of us have a hard time believing that Jesus is as good as the Bible says he is. Surely God is not gracious. If I am dead in sin, if I'm really as broken as the Bible says, surely God's not kind enough, surely he's not loving enough to cleanse me and to forgive me. In this passage, Jesus, as I studied it last January, it became one of my favorites in all of the Bible because of how poetically it shouts at those doubts. 
because of the way that it interrupts our disqualifying thoughts. Because in this passage, it speaks over our sin. It calls us to question our questions about God's love for us and says that stronger than death is the one who laid down his life that we might live. Verse 14, let's read it again. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's just so moving. The verse is, I'm so moved by this verse. It's a beautiful, illustrative description of what happens for you when Jesus dies on the cross. And what happens for me when Jesus dies on the cross, it's a picture that invites you and invites me, if you remember, to see yourself on the mountain when Jesus is being crucified and to see yourself on the mountain and see Jesus taking your place. He says it like this, sin is a record of debt that you and I owed God. No one is excused from that. Nobody's the exception to that. Uh, we, we owed God a perfect life. And there is this written account of all the ways that I fall short and all the ways that you fall short, all the sins that you and I have committed, God's demands of how we are to live and all the ways that we've fallen short of those demands. And what happens in our life is that those sins hang over our head as a debt that I owe and hang over your head as a debt that you owe and they loom over your life and it's too much. You can't pay it. I can't pay it. We can't wipe the slate clean. And in Jesus, your debt, the charge against you is nailed to the cross that Jesus himself hung on. When Rome crucified someone, the way crucifixion happened in the first century, when they crucified someone, they would write the charge against them on a board called the Titleist. And it was nailed to the cross before the person being crucified was nailed to the cross so that when they were being nailed to the cross, they and everyone else knew what they were guilty of. So it worked like this. If a traitor was gonna be crucified, they're on the mountain, somebody is preparing the cross for them, they take the titleist, they take the board, they write traitor on the board, they nail that to the cross, and then the traitor comes up the mountain and then lays down on the cross underneath the charge, underneath what they're guilty of. If a murderer is gonna be crucified, they take the board, they write murder on the board, they nail it to the cross, and then the murderer comes up the mountain and he's nailed to the cross under the charge of what he's guilty of. We know through history and through the gospels that what they wrote above Jesus' head was king of the Jews because he was being crucified for claiming to be king. That was the charge against him. And Paul draws on that reality. He draws on all of that and says something else is written as the charge against Jesus. In the physical realm, Rome writes king of the Jews, but in the spiritual realm, in the realm of rescue and in the realm of salvation, Jesus is giving his life and written as the charge against him, written above his head is all of your sin, all of your failure, all the ways that you and I uh, fail to live up, what hangs over your head as the debt that you owe, a lifetime of failure, is nailed to the cross and Jesus is charged as guilty of all that you've done. In your place, he dies so that we can be declared forgiven and we can have new life. See yourself, please, see yourself on the mountain. Imagine being at the place of the cross. The sky is full of darkness and someone is preparing a cross and they're writing the charge on the board and you look over and you see them writing and it's all your sin. All you've ever done. Then it's taken and it's nailed to an empty cross and you know, you know you're guilty. You know you've been exposed. 
You know the debt that you owe is going to crash down on you. And at any moment, you can be taken and you can be nailed underneath your failure and you can be nailed underneath your sin. And so you wait for judgment to come. You know you deserve it. You can't escape it. Your mouth has been closed to your own defense and you stand exposed before a holy God. And at any moment, it could be your death. But God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, spares you of the nails and spares you of the death because while it's your charge and while it's your sin, there is one coming up the mountain for you who will take it for you. You look and you see Jesus beaten and bloodied, his body weak from suffering, his heart filled with sacrifice, guilty of nothing, pure in everything, lived the perfect life, and he walks up to your cross. He sees your charge, and he puts a gentle hand on your shoulder. He whispers, I love you, and he lays down his life so that you might live. And not just live a life forgiven of sin, but live a life where we're no longer defined by our sin. What happens on that mountain is that he gets our sin and we get his life, a brand new name, a new identity. We are not. We are not who we were. Christian, you're not your worst moment. You're not your sin. You're not your affair. You're not the lies you've told. You're not your worry and your fear. You're not your lust. You're not your divorce, you're not your self-harm, you're not your coping, you're not your abortion, you're not your addiction, you don't have to hide. You don't have to fear being found out. You're not what's been done to you. You're not what you have, you're not what you've lost, you're not what you achieve, you're not your failures, you're not your fears, you're not your faults. You are who God in Christ says that you are. You're not your unrighteousness, you're not your self-righteousness, but you are one who is covered in Christ's righteousness because everything you owed hung above his head. He died so that you could live. You are loved, he loves you. He loves you, Christian. And look, he loves you right where you are, not the version of you that you think is lovable. He loves the unadorned, the unfiltered, the broken, the very person you fear will be discovered by others is the very same person that he loves right now. You are loved by God in Christ because that's your worst. Every sin and every accusation and everything wrong and everything dark and idolatrous and evil hung over the head of your Savior so that you are not only forgiven of all that you've done, but you're no longer defined by all that you've done. You are in Christ. He loves you. Praise God. May we never, may we never get beyond that, that we as Christians in a world that has no idea how to love, that we have, as Christians have access to a love that is scandalous to the world have access to a love that we never could have earned, that we receive so undeserved. Life in Christ is life defined by the love of Christ, and that sends us into chapter three. Remember with me, because of who we are in Jesus, because of what he's done, it means we will become like him. Chapter three, verses one through four. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You and I are loved right as we are. We are loved at our worst. God rescues us and he cleanses us and he absorbs all the wrath that we deserve so that we could be cleansed. And we are now defined not by our sin, but we are defined by Jesus. And that love does something in your life. It can't help it. That love changes you. That love will not leave you the same. 
It changes us to make us look more like Jesus. It meets us where we are, but it doesn't leave us where we are. God, as the great sculptor, will chip away at what doesn't look like Christ in our lives and will form us into Christ-likeness. And chapter three, verses one through four, begins that conversation and it carries throughout the rest of the book. That's all he talks about for the rest of the book. And he starts by saying, set your minds on things above. Seek him, seek what is above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Right now, Jesus is at the Father's right hand. He has all power. He has been vindicated in all of his claims. He is also our priest. He is our advocate. He is speaking gospel words about you right now. His voice is the voice of love that interrupts the voice of shame and it interrupts the voice of doubt by reminding over and again for all of eternity. It says he forever lives to make intercession for us. And so I have been preaching for 28 minutes and in those minutes, Jesus has been at the Father's right hand interceding for you preaching a sermon about you, a better sermon about you to the Father. Do you ever forget that you're forgiven? You ever forget that you're not defined by what you've done? Do you ever forget or have a hard time believing that you're loved the way that you are? Do you know who never forgets? Jesus. He talks about it all the time. He's talking about it right now, interceding for you and those who are loved by him, those uh, who he forever lives to intercede for, they think about him. They set their minds on him. They seek them with their whole heart. They spend time with him. When we are loved by him and we spend time with him, we become like him. That's what marks life in Christ, the life of a Christian. So this, the greatest ambition of your life, brother, the greatest ambition of your life, sister, is to become like Jesus. You and I live in a world where success and meaning and worth is defined by what you accomplish and by what you have and by how you perform. That's everywhere. That message is not just around us. That message is the impulse that exists within us. But to be a Christian is to abandon that definition of success. To be a Christian is to abandon that definition of meaning and to embrace this truth. The most important thing about my life is not what I accomplish, but who I become. The greatest contribution that you make in the world, Christian, is not accomplishing something, but becoming someone, becoming like Jesus. Now, God wired you differently. You're unique, and so you becoming like Jesus is going to be fleshed out in your life through the way that God has wired you, the personality that he's gifted you, the gifts that he has bestowed upon you to use for his glory. But the greatest thing about life, the most important thing, is not what you go and do, but about who you become because of the way that you've been loved and what's been declared to be true about you. And so failure in life is not missing out on the dream job. Failure is not missing out on the accolades. Failure is not missing out on status. Failure is not missing out on influence. Failure for the Christian is being successful in the eyes of the world, but not offering in your life a picture of Jesus to the world. That's failure. Failure is to have a life filled with accomplishments and a heart void of virtue. Failure is to get everything you want and have nothing that will last. This is what Paul is after in 1 Corinthians when he says, if I can speak in tongues of angels, if I can be impressive, if I can have power and knowledge and understanding, but I don't have love, I am nothing. Becoming like Jesus is so underrated. Let's recover that together as a church. 
recover together that the greatest ambition is that we become like the one who has loved us so completely and so scandalously to live a life that's not bent on accomplishing something but becoming someone that's a meaningful life and so Paul describes in the rest of the book what that means it's putting off sin and putting off idolatry and putting off anger putting off the things that hurt God putting off the things that hurt others and putting on meekness and putting on love and putting on patience that's all of chapter 3 as we seek him, as we set our minds on him who intercedes for us, he changes us. And it means forgiving as we've been forgiven, those who seek repentance. It means bearing with others. I am with you and for you, even and especially when it's hard because I want my life to make your life look more like Jesus. It means being a part of a church together, singing together and spending time in God's word. It means being different in our homes loving our spouse, loving our children. Men, it means being a gentle presence in the home. It means living a surrendered life where Jesus is Lord of all of my days and Jesus is Lord of all of my desires. And we saw last week, it means walking in wisdom, being humble, being slow to anger, using our words to heal, not to hurt, and remembering the story that we belong to. And that brings us to the end of our letter. That brings us to the goodbye. Paul offers a 12-verse farewell. And I just want to draw your attention to the names and make a very brief point. He acknowledges 10 people, Tychicus, Onesimus, Mark, Epaphras, Demas, and others. Some of their stories we know, some of their stories we don't. Here's what they share in common, that you and I, as those who live our lives in Christ, share in common with them. They are participants in the mission of God. They are participants in the mission of God. Some of them come from religious backgrounds, some of them don't, that's true here. Some of them are in full-time ministry, some of them have other jobs, that's true in this room. Some uh, offered their homes to host church, some uh, traveled the known world with the gospel, some are returning to the city seeking forgiveness, some need encouragement, some to be admonished. Paul has this huge platform, his name has gone down in history, he will never be forgotten. Others of them are unknown, they get a passing nod at the end of a short letter in the New Testament, but all of them are participants in the mission of God, all. This church, the letter written to this church does not exist without some of these people. God is using them because life in Christ, this is the last point, life in Christ is life lived for Christ. That all of us, all of us are in ministry. All of us are participants in the mission of God. We talked last week about how the story we live in is not first and foremost determined by the headlines. The story we live in as Christians is not the story of a virus, the story of an election, the story of controversy that dominates the news. The story we live in is I am a Christian. I live in between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. I look back at his death-defeating resurrection. I look forward to his world-riding return, and I am part in that story. I am part of the mission of God. I am a participant in the mission of God. I have a ministry to offer to the world, to share what he has done, to share who he is. All of us in ministry together called to share what we know about Jesus to the world around us where God has placed us. That's life in Christ. And isn't he worth it? I just marvel at Jesus. Just marvel at how good he is, what he has done, what he will do. Think with me, friends, just to stand on this side of a year in this book and to look back and to say life in Christ is to know him, 
To know him as the only one who satisfies the soul. To know him as the only one who can bring healing to the hunger of the heart. To be loved by him who takes away our sin and gives us in its place a new identity. To be changed by him. To look more like him and then to share him with the world. That is life in Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. I thank you for your word. Oh, what I didn't get to say, God, about my own just internal and, and private experience with you, God, through this book. Just reminded, and I have been following you, Jesus, for 29 years. And 29 years in to see you even more clearly, to know so much more intimately the fellowship that you offer because of your love and your grace to see how sufficient your word is for every need, to see how you've carried us, God, because of what you've spoken in the past and what continues to ring true and preach to us today. We thank you. Lord, our life, Jesus, our life is you and only you. We thank you that you made a way. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that we get to walk this life with you, not confused about meaning and purpose, not confused about how the story ends, but confident that you are who you say you are and life lived with you, life lived in you, Jesus, is the only way to live. We love you, amen.